All right. Good, good evening. Uh, I want to I want to tell you about where where I'm coming from. Um, you know, I found myself on the floor of my apartment um, at 19 years old, and I was begging God for answers. I was saying, God, uh, you know, I'm doing everything they say to do. I'm sharing my faith with every single person that I meet. I'm in church every time the doors are open. I'm reading my Bible four and five hours a day, and yet I still don't feel close to you. I don't feel like I'm growing. I don't feel like there's any progress. In fact, I'm more miserable than ever. Um, If I were to be honest, back then, a sales pitch with an unbeliever, my sales pitch would be, would you like to become a Christian and be miserable like me? I didn't feel like I was in a family. I felt like I was in the army. And I was uh, sharing Christ with people that uh, didn't want to hear it. It was grace in your face. I was in halfway houses, jails, prisons, airliners where they were buckled in, uh, hotel ballrooms. I would walk in and stop everything that was happening, share Christ with the crowd, have an invitation to come forward or in fact in that case come backward uh, to the back of the room and pray with me and then I would hit the door, I would hit the door at uh, 19 years old and go run in the car and drive off before the cops came and got me for disturbing the peace. See, I had put my antenna out. I had put my antenna out and I was getting a few messages back from the Christian world. Read, read your Bible, share your faith, and uh, do it with fervor, do it with all your might, and then you'll feel clean and then you'll feel close to God. Uh, the only problem is, is that it didn't work. Um, it was a fine-sounding religious formula, but it didn't work. Uh, and so tonight and throughout this weekend, I want to take some time to uh, talk about how God rescued me from that life of religiosity. Um, at the center of that message is something called the New Covenant. I had been a Christian Uh, For, you know, more than a decade, and I had never heard a single uh, sermon on the new covenant, on what it is, and why it's so different from the old covenant, and how in the world it's a rescue uh, for me. So, uh, this weekend, we're going to spend some time digging into what is God's new covenant of grace, and why is it so different, why is it so radical, and what does it mean for us personally? Now, tonight... Uh, In this first session, I want to talk about guilt, uh, because I certainly had plenty of it. And we all can suffer from guilt. We can find ourselves victims of guilt over things we've done in the past. And, you know, I had heard some pretty nice messages. You know, if, if you ask for forgiveness each time, God will forgive you. If you remember to confess every sin, then progressively, day after day, week after week, year after year, God will Uh, you know, swoop down out of heaven and forgive you and cleanse you until the next time. And then the next time he'll swoop down again, and then the next time, and then the next time. And so you begin to sort of feel like you're on this roller coaster ride with the God of the universe, uh, wondering if you're all fessed up. Have you confessed every sin? Well, what if you forget one? Uh, Then then what happens? So um, I began asking some pretty... um, 
necessary questions for me. And the, 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 the answers I found through the scriptures uh, totally revolutionized my relationship with the Lord. I'm more uh, content and excited about him than I ever was back then trying to work for him instead of living from him. So we begin with this um, blood economy. And so God's blood economy is at the heart of this. And uh, when we talk about God's blood economy, uh, what we're saying is, you know, think about the, the government bailout that we had years ago. In that government bailout, people were down at the banks and they had an apology on their lips and they had sorrow in their hearts and they had tears in their eyes and they had a story. Uh, and yet the banks didn't care because we have a money-driven economy. We don't have a an apology-driven economy. We have a money-driven economy. The banks wanted to get paid. Now, with regard to our sins, uh, we don't have an apology-driven economy either. God has a blood-based economy. Now, this is really important to wrap your mind around. The book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So, uh, you know, without the shedding of blood means without the shedding of blood. It means that blood takes center stage. It means that we begin to brag about what Jesus did and uh, not brag about the great memory that we have. I used to think that my forgiveness was about my memory and my legal pad and my many, many words. And now I'm realizing it, it's, it's about Jesus and the cross and the blood economy and it is finished, it's over, it's done with. Hebrews 9.22 says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So you ask yourself, how many times did Jesus die? How many times did he shed his blood? If it's not about you and how many times you're confessing, if it's not about you and how many times you're asking God to forgive you, if it's about Jesus and blood, then how many times did Jesus Christ die? Once for how many of your sins? All. Did it work? Yes. How much? Fully, completely, a hundred percent. So we are forgiven once for all, not again and again. What I'm saying is that Christians are not people who are being forgiven progressively. We are forgiven people. In Hebrews 10, it says the law is only a shadow Therefore, the law could never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, it could never make them perfect. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed how many times? Once for all. So did that ever happen for Israel? No. Year after year after year, they went to the temple, they went to the Day of Atonement, they went to the tabernacle, they got their sins covered, and then it would be one year later, and another year later, and another year later, and they would every 365 days get a year's worth of sins covered. Now, what this passage is saying is, is if they had had, if they had enjoyed what we have today, then those sacrifices could have stopped being offered because the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all. 
So you see, I love this passage because it has the word cleansed in it. I've heard people uh, argue against this sort of logic about Jesus and they say, well, we're forgiven, but we're just not cleansed. Have you ever heard that? We're forgiven of all of our sins eternally in God's heavenly bookkeeping, but we're just not cleansed here on earth. And so we have to do a little bit of Peter foot washing every day or something. Well, the Peter foot washing incident, as you know, was about serving one another. It wasn't even about a theology of forgiveness. The reality is, is that in Christ, you have been forgiven once for all, and you've also been cleansed once for all. Back then, it was a 364 day delay. I mean, you go into the tabernacle or the temple and you offer the sacrifices that are necessary. Then you're on your way home. And as you're on your way home, you stub your toe on a rock and you use the Lord's name in vain. Now you got to wait 364 days to get that sin covered again at the next year's Day of Atonement. So there was this delay year after year. And we find that in Jesus Christ, the opposite is true. 1 Peter 3, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. You'll notice that the death was once for all. You'll notice that the forgiveness was once for all. You'll notice that the cleansing is once for all. Now, growing up, what I had heard is, sure, absolutely, you come to Christ. If this is your moment of salvation, then you come to Christ and all of your sins from the past all the way up until now, well, of course, those are are forgiven. But now it's up to you to stay forgiven and stay cleansed through your ritual with God. Now, if that's the case, then salvation got worse because you got saved. The gospel got less powerful the day that you received Christ. It was all about Him once for all, and now it's all about you little by little. The reality is is as we look down the timeline of your sins, how many of your sins were in the future when Christ died? All of them. Your past sins, your present sins, your future sins. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. You know what sanctified means? It means set apart. I know what we've done to the word. We talk about progressively, we're getting... No, you as a person are set apart. You are sanctified, set apart for a purpose. That's been done. You are a child of God, a person of God's own possession. You are reserved for him. You are set apart and sanctified. Not everything you think, right? Not everything you do is set apart for him. Me neither. We're learning and growing. But we are heaven ready. If Jesus Christ comes walking through that door saying, let's go, It's time. You are heaven ready. You're going to get a new body, but it never says he's going to like rework your spirit and soul all over again before you hit the pearly gates. You, who you are, is set apart, sanctified, ready for God. Even though we're learning and we're growing, we don't get our value or our righteousness from our learning or from our growing. And so... The Bible says that by one offering, he has perfected you for all time. That doesn't mean perfectly behaved. It means perfectly cleansed. It doesn't mean perfectly perfect performance. It means perfect forgiveness. 
Now, it's interesting also that Jesus did something that the blood of bulls and goats could not do. Jesus Christ um, did not cover your sins. In the Old Testament, there was a covering. They called it atonement, right? It was a covering. And we hear a lot of Christians today uh, even using this sort of verbiage about Christ. They say, don't worry. Don't worry. Your sins are under the blood. Okay, well, what if one creeps out the side? See, your sins are not under the blood. They've been washed away. Your sins are not covered. They've been removed as far as the east is from the west. Your sins aren't under anything. Your sins are gone. The God of the universe says, I remember your sins no more. Amen? Not a real charismatic crowd, are you? We're going to have to get some flags in here, maybe some animal noises up front or something. I don't know. Spice it up. Hebrews 10. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, right? Now, going on, he says, Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one, nor did Christ enter heaven again and again to offer himself over and over. You know why this verse is in the Bible? I mean, here we are, American and Christians for the most part, and we're going, I mean, of course he's not up in heaven dying over and over again. Who said he was? Well, there are actually so-called believers that think he's up in heaven doing something over and over and over about our sins. But see, the writer of Hebrews is actually saying this. This is the logic. See, if it requires blood and only blood and he's not dying anymore, then you're not getting forgiven anymore than you already are. It's real simple. We can put it in in, in West Texas logic, right? He ain't up there dying, so you ain't down here getting forgiven of your shins, right? Did you all do? Do we need an interpreter for you? Was that like tongues? See, that's that's where I live. That's that's my native language now. But see, he's not up there dying, so you're not down here getting forgiven. Little by little by little. He's not up there dying over and over and over. So you're not down here getting your sins washed away, cleansed one one by one by one by one. Isn't it interesting that a lot of us Christians have sort of bought the lie that we are getting forgiven sin by sin by sin by sin. Do you realize how neurotic that is? That that is more neurotic than the Jewish law was because at least... At least they could get 365 days of sins taken care of in one moment. And here we are one by one by one by one assuming, as I said, that he swoops down out of heaven, polishes you off like a bowling ball again, and you roll off about your Christian life. See, if that were the case, if you were being forgiven progressively, what does it say? Then Christ would have to suffer how many times? Often, pretty often, right? Some of us have sinned thousands of times, millions of times. I met some of you, I know it's billions of times. Uh, And so think about that. Every time you sinned, he'd have to hang on a cross all over again. People say, well, I just like to ask him. 
Will you forgive me? I just like to ask him. All right, well, if, if you, when you are saying, will you forgive me, what you're really saying is, Lord, I'm sorry. That's not who I am. I regret that. Teach me to act differently. That's great. But if you are saying, will you forgive me, as if, as if it's a question, and then waiting for a forgiving feeling to come along, that feeling might be quite some time. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a choice, and God made it, and you're a forgiven person once for all. You'll notice that he says, Now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, not to cover sin, but to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Another translation says to those who are eagerly awaiting him. Can you eagerly await him if you think he's going to bring up all the bad stuff you did? See, the year was 1988, and I was in youth group, and my mom warned me. She said, Andrew, when you go to youth group tonight, the youth pastor is going to tell you guys that Jesus is coming back in the morning. Now, the youth pastor, I went to the group that night. Sure enough, he had been reading a book called 88 Reasons why Christ is returning in 1988. Now, that book's not a big seller today. Uh, But they may rework it for next century or something. I don't know. But that wasn't the weirdest part of the evening. The weirdest part of the evening was not the youth pastor who was convinced that Jesus was coming back in the a.m. It was the response of of us. The youth group, the kids, it was our reaction. We were scared out of our wits. We were freaked, man. I mean, there were some of us praying to receive Christ four and five times that night just in case it didn't take the first time. And you you have to ask, why were we so freaked out? Why were we so scared? Well, I'll tell you why. We were imagining the big movie screen in the sky. You know what I'm talking about? When the Lord returns, the big movie of your sins. Now, why are there so many right now shaking their head? Yeah, I know what you're... That is nowhere to be found in the Bible. Nevertheless, we were scared of this movie. You know, there you are in line, and there's a, your buddy's in front of you, and, uh, you know, he's got a plastic grin on his face. Hello, brother. Hello, brother. He knows that his blockbuster film is coming up. He's holding his popcorn, pretending to have a good time. And you're nervous too, maybe more nervous than him. And then, boom, there it is, in your face, a technicolor dream, all your sins, and everybody's watching. Well, the good news, the truth that sets you free, is that there is no movie. God destroyed the movie real. Their sins and lawless acts I remember no more. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves a movie. Fear involves punishment. If I'm fearing, I dream of this punishment and it's a nightmare. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. 
And the one who fears is not perfected in God's love. So if you're freaked out about judgment, do you realize that you've already been judged? The verdict was guilty. The punishment was death. Jesus died. So do the math and celebrate. We water down the wages. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We say the wages of sin is less jewelry. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. We say the wages of sin is less square footage in our mansion. The Bible says the wages of sin is death so that we can see that Jesus paid all the wages and there's no wages left. The sin issue is not an issue. God is not relating to you on the basis of your sins. You say, you say what about discipline? I mean, the Bible tells us God disciplines us, right? Discipline is training for the future. It's not punishment for the past. Do you see the difference? Discipline is training for the future, not punishment for the past. Jesus Christ took all the punishment. There is no punishment left. In the United States, we have a law in the books. It's called Double Jeopardy. Have you guys ever seen? There's a movie by this name, Double Jeopardy. But the concept is real simple. Once you've been tried and a verdict has been reached, you can't be retried in the same way for the same thing again, right? That's what the gospel has basically announced, that with God there is no double jeopardy. You've already been tried. You found guilty. The punishment, death. Jesus paid the fine. Jesus paid the punishment. You're not going to be retried. There is no movie. He destroyed the real. Well, what about uh, Christian karma? You know, uh, what I mean by that is that over the years as I talk to believers, I find that uh, we tend to sort of engage in a sort of Christian karma. If we haven't figured out the, the perfect love of God to a certain degree, then we start looking for the love of God in our circumstances. Have you ever done that? You're trying to line things up, connect the dots to see what God is spelling, right? I lost my job. I lost my spouse. I lost my kid. I lost this, I lost that, so therefore, God, what are, you, what, are you, what are you doing to me? You know, what are you doing? And uh, it's a dangerous game to play because there are so many um, actors in the theater of life. You know that? Like if I took you to a play, let's imagine there was a play up on the stage tomorrow night and we sat there and we watched this production and there were seven, eight, ten actors up here doing lots of different things. And afterwards, we sat out in the lobby and I say, hey, what would you think of that? You say, oh, I love one-act plays when it's just one actor. And I say, one actor? No, no, no. There were many actors. Do you not remember? Are we, did we even see the same production? See, there are many actors in the theater of life. There are, there's the world. There's the flesh. There's the enemy. There's the drunk driver at that street corner that took that little girl. And when we put God, God's face on all these actors, then we miss it. The Father's face becomes disfigured. We can't figure Him out. See, this is planet Earth. Planet Earth comes at us, but Christ works in us. He's known as the comforter for a reason, right? 
He comforts us in the midst of everything that planet earth throws our way. But he is not hurling it at us and saying, I wonder how she's going to cope with this. Planet earth throws so many things at us, but Christ is working in us. Big difference. Do you recognize the difference? Jesus Christ took away our sins. He's not relating to us on the basis of our sins. John announced it. He said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Bible says in 1 John 3, you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. Now, after Jesus Christ took away our sins, I'm not going to play the keyboard for you, just so you know, I'm not, not gifted in that area. But after he took away our sins, he did something peculiar. Now, the Bible says that he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, this was actually a forbidden piece of furniture. In the Jewish temple, in the Jewish tabernacle, this was a forbidden piece of furniture for thousands of years. Now, why would that be? I want you to imagine that you roll into the tabernacle thousands of years ago, you roll into the temple, and there's your high priest, and he's kicked back on a stool, and he looks at you and he says, what's up? I mean, what would that convey to you? Man, this guy's got nothing to do. He's got no work left. And so, God required then that every priest stand In the book of Hebrews, it says, every priest stands daily offering again and again the same sacrifices, a bull and a goat and a bull and a goat, offering the same sacrifices over and over, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, capital P, Jesus Christ, had offered for all time One sacrifice, what did he do? He did the forbidden, he did the illegal, he did what no other priest could do. He sat down at the right hand of God and he said, it is finished. Now little kids say this at the end of a good meal, don't they? They say, all gone, right? That's what the gospel is. The gospel is... Your sins are all gone. Your relationship with law-based religion is all gone. Who you used to be at the core, now crucified with Christ, buried, all gone. Any obstacle between you and God, now all gone. But then we get in there as master theologians and we say, but, 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 but. Look, don't be a but. Just go with what Jesus said. It's pretty reliable. 1 John chapter 2. He is the one who turns aside God's wrath, taking away our sins. And not only our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. Meaning, here's this Jewish man, John, going, not just us. Not just us Jews, but the Gentiles too. Brother Paul, please, please don't minister to the Gentiles. And yet that's the gospel, that the whosoever wills get their sins taken away forever. Jesus is now seated with regard to your sins. Here it is, 
day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties, again and again he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So I guess my question is, is if he sat down, then what position are you in regarding your sins? Are you suffering from the Martha syndrome? Are you up running around Georgetown, running around Austin, trying to get right and get clean and stay right and stay clean? Or will you sit down with Jesus Christ and agree with him that it's over, that it's done, that he's done everything he needs to do about your sins? And if the God of the universe is satisfied, shouldn't you be also? Yes. Amen. Since that time, Jesus waits for his enemies to be made into an ottoman, a footstool, so he can kick his feet up on them. For by one sacrifice, here it is, he has perfected for how long? For all time, those who are sanctified. Do you realize that your forgiveness is for all time? Not just for today or yesterday or since you got saved or since you were little, but for all time. So will you sit down with Jesus? Will you agree with him? You know, if not, there is a a mobile app for you. It's called I Confess. Uh, It's a free download uh, in the App Store. It's available on Apple and uh, others as well. So consider that. And I'm not kidding. The Roman Catholic Church has offered us an app that uh, you can go through and you tick off your sins uh, based mainly on the Ten Commandments and some other things. And then after you've ticked off all your sins, you hit the submit button. It fires a confession up to the God of the universe. And within a short time, uh, you receive a message that you indeed have been forgiven, uh, that your confession is valid. Now, I make light of that, but do you realize... That if it were about you and your memory and your legal pad and your many, many words, then you would need a computer to help. You would literally need some sort of mobile device to keep track of all the thoughts and all the attitudes and all the actions and all the choices. I mean, think about this. Let's just do a little bit of math together. I'm I'm a professor. I like math. I like to do uh, quizzes. So here's a couple of questions for you. How many times have you sinned in your life? Okay, I'd like some numbers. Anyone? One time I had a guy yell out, three! I said, well, that makes four. (laughs) But come on. (laughs) But come on. I mean, think about all the times that you've sinned in your life. Now, how many of those... Have you remembered to confess? Uh Uh-oh. See, that's a lot smaller number. So what are you going to do? And then we come up with, well, he doesn't worry about the ones I forget about. If I forget, he forgets. (laughs) So if I take an amnesia pill, then that makes God forgive me and forget. See, what if it's a lot easier than all of that? What if it's not about my ability to do something but instead it's about Jesus' ability 
and it's already been done. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had provided purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty. This is why our forgiveness is expressed in past tense. So many times throughout the scriptures when Paul, Peter, James, and John are talking to believers, our forgiveness is expressed in past tense. Colossians chapter 2, he forgave us, past tense, how many sins? All our sins. 1 John chapter 2, I write you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven. Past tense. Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving only those who apologize. Now, do you see how if I believe that God forgives me only when I apologize, then when I go to forgive other people as God forgives me, guess what I'm going to do? Hold out for that apology. I'm going to exude conditional forgiveness because I think that is exactly what I've got from God. But we don't have a God of conditional forgiveness, a God of conditional love, a God of conditional affection. We have a God who we continually claim is agape, unconditional love. And so therefore, when we see Ephesians 4.32, we need to conclude that Jesus is, is, is in a seated position about our sins because God has said, I forgive you and I release you. Even if you do it again, you owe me an apology, you owe me respect, you owe me better treatment. But I forgive you and I release you from your debt. You don't owe me anything. And then and only then can I understand what it means to turn to another person who has hurt me deeply. And to say to them, I choose as an act of my will, not following my feelings, but I choose as an act of my will to forgive you and release you from anything that you owe me, even if you do it again. You owe me respect. You owe me an apology. You owe me better treatment. You owe me, but I release you from that debt. Before you apologize, even if you never apologize, Because the God of the universe has extended to me unconditional forgiveness. And all I can say for that is wow and thank you. And then pass it on to those around me. Forgive others just as in Christ God forgave, past tense, forgave you. Hebrews chapter 10, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these might be forgiven. Is that what it says? Where these could be forgiven, where these will be forgiven someday. No, it says, and where these have been forgiven, past tense, there's no longer any sacrifice for sins. You know why there's no longer any sacrifice for sins? Because there doesn't need to be one. The first one worked. If the first one worked, why would you need a second one? So forgiveness is something that we have. It's something that we're in possession of, 
It's not something that we're getting. And by the way, it's a, it's a package deal. It's a two for sale. You know, when you get it like a two for one, I recently bought some dress shirts. I hope you're admiring. But at the men's warehouse, and I don't work for the men's warehouse. You know, I don't get a kickback or anything. But at the men's warehouse, you know, you buy one, you get one free. That's a pretty good deal. I'm enticed by stuff like that. All right, well, in the Bible, we find that forgiveness and redemption are a package deal. How many of you wake up every day and say, God, please redeem me? Anybody? God, please buy me back. What does redemption mean? Buy me back. When I was a kid, we'd go down to the IGA. You ever heard of that? The IGA? You got those around here? They're gone, aren't they? The IGA, I don't know what it stands the International Garage Sale, I don't know what it stands for. But the IGA, we would go down there and we would uh, take our bottles that we had had from last Sunday or whatever, we'd take them down and they would buy them back. They would redeem them, right? We'd get a few cents, 10 cents or whatever for a bottle. And uh, so that's what buying back is. Now, if you're in Christ, God has already redeemed you. God has already bought you back, much like a bottle He bought you back, He filled you with Himself, and then He sealed you until the day of redemption. Now that's pretty safe sounding, isn't it? He bought you, filled you, and sealed you. Now, you'll notice in Ephesians 1.7, it says, In Him we have redemption. So you just said, you don't wake up every day, Lord, please redeem me, please buy me back. Why? Because you're already bought. So then why would we wake up every day, Lord, please forgive me, because we're already forgiven. Do you see? It's a package deal. It's a two for sale. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have two things, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So uh, I guess what we're saying is this, back in... 1903, the Wright brothers, they believed something. They believed that the law of gravity, as we know it, at least to the naked eye, could be superseded. And so they went about uh, the process of building an airplane. In fact, they built many airplanes. And uh, eventually, uh, they had one in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, lift off of the surface of the earth and fly for quite some time, and then come down. And so, in that sense, you could say that the laws, the principles under which they were operating, had, at least to the naked eye, superseded the law of gravity, right? Now, the Bible says that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has now rescued us from the law of sin and death. It has superseded it. You know what the law of sin and death is? Sin deserves death. You know the law of gravity. You throw an apple up, it comes down every single time. The law of sin and death, you commit sin, sin deserves death every single time. But here comes another law, and that is the law of I'll never leave you. The law of I'll never forsake you. The law of my face is always towards you. The law of when we are faithless, He remains faithful. Do you see that? What if it's not about you and what you're doing? What if it's about Jesus Christ and what he did? Now, let me come over to the side for a side note. Sin is bad. 
I hate sin. What should we do when we sin? If we, if we don't have to get down on our knees and beg and plead and hope and wait to be forgiven, then what in the world should we do when we commit a sin? Here, here's a crazy idea. Stop. Turn from it. Pull a 180. And get away from it. I like to tell people when you're escaping sin, you know, stop, drop, and roll. Now, this also, this also works well during a fire. But the point is, do you see what I'm saying? Sin stinks. Sin never pays off. Turn away from sin. Reject sin. Trust Jesus Christ for new ways of thinking and new ways of acting. Uh, Paul was addressing some Christians And uh, some of them were engaged in stealing. They were running through town, stealing, grabbing people's stuff. Paul's response to them is, stop stealing. Pull a 180. Get a job. Work with your hands. Give to those in need. You see, that's a, a healthy response to sin. Stop, turn from it, act differently, trust Christ. But you'll notice that he never said you have to beg and plead and hope and wait and maybe, just maybe, God will forgive you. Why didn't he say that? Because it's finished. Why didn't he say that? Because it's once for all. Why didn't he say that? Because it's by one sacrifice that we've been perfectly cleansed forever. Well, then I'm just going to set world records for sin. Look, you're sinning just fine without this message. Because, I mean, think about it. If your theology has been, well, i got to ask, well, all you do is sin and then ask, and then sin and then ask, and then sin and then ask. All you got to do is say, please forgive me. Okay, thanks. So, what if it's finished, and what if God wants us to know it's finished? Because God wants us to come to the place where we see that if I'm perfectly forgiven and I'm perfectly cleansed, then maybe I might start thinking like a forgiven, cleansed person. If I'm cleansed, I might think clean. If I'm cleansed, I might act clean. I lived in South Bend, Indiana for five years. We had uh, three bedrooms in that house. One bedroom was our master bedroom. The other bedroom, my wife, she kept it spotless. I mean, for that last minute visitor, you could take a white glove and run it down the furniture and come up with nothing. It was ready. It was clean. Now, you talk about confessions. Let me tell you about that third bedroom. It was my office, and it was a wreck. I mean, you could barely make it across the room. There were papers and boxes and old computer equipment and all kinds of junk. Now, I want you to imagine that you're traveling down the hallway of that house, and you got a piece of garbage all balled up, ready to toss somewhere. Where are you going to toss it? you going to toss it in the guest bedroom or in my office? Oh, in my office? Thanks. I appreciate that. But of course you would, right? What's the logic? It's already dirty. Why not throw one more on the pile? Now I got a question for you. When a sinful thought travels down the hallway of your mind, which room are you? Because if you're already dirty, guess what the next thought's going to be? Why not throw one more on the pile? I'm already dirty. But if you are that perfect, spotless guest room, blameless, holy, righteous, forgiven, cleansed, once for all, for all time, you look at that thought and you say, this doesn't fit. 
as Paul says, this is not fitting for saints, a holy one. And that is who you are. It is impossible to display the love of Christ and the fruit of God's Spirit without realizing our cleansing. Peter says this, if we are not displaying the grace and kindness and gentleness and love of Christ to other people, it is because we have forgotten our cleansing. So guess what the answer is? Remember your cleansing. It's once for all. It's over. It's finished. Let's give thanks to our God. Father, we thank you for tonight. We want to honor Jesus Christ. We want to honor his sacrifice. We want to honor your son. And so we uh, agree with you right now. We choose to agree with you that we are forgiven people. That by one offering, we've been cleansed forever. That if we are in Christ, we have redemption and forgiveness. Father, we hate sin. We want to turn from it every time. We ask for your counsel. But we also know that your son, Jesus Christ, did an awesome work on the cross. And we are grateful. So to you, we say wow and we say thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.